Well, good morning, church. We uh, find ourselves this morning in part two of a five-part series on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. As a brief reminder, we are doing this series, number one, to commemorate, to honor the 500th anniversary of the greatest movement in the history of Western civilization. And that's no exaggeration. A movement which we all have benefited immensely from. The second reason is to remind you, or even perhaps introduce you. I know that some of you may know these solas very well, maybe better than I do. But I know some of you have never been instructed on these things. So perhaps for some of you this is an introduction to the solas. So I want to remind you or introduce you and equip you with the basic historical and theological knowledge so that you will know very clearly why we are Protestant. If you know why we are Protestants, then you will be able to effectively engage our Roman Catholic friends with the truth, having the goal of winning them. But most of all, If you have a crystal clear understanding of why we're Protestants, then you will be safeguarded against false gospels and false teaching. Last week, we began with the fundamental sola, sola scriptura. From 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, we clearly see that scripture is the God-breathed word in human words. We also learn that the scripture's intended use is fourfold. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training. Finally, we saw that the scripture is adequate for everything. In other words, scripture is enough. So if all that's true, if the Bible you hold in your hands is God-breathed, if it's useful, if it's sufficient then that means no other source in existence is to hold higher or equal authority in the life of the church. What that means is popes cannot exceed what's written. Creeds and confessions cannot exceed what's written. No one under the sun is allowed to contradict what the scripture teaches about salvation. If he does, then he is anathema according to Paul in Galatians 1. If the Bible says, here's how a man can stand before God and live, but then someone else comes along and says, no, 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 here's how you can stand before God and live, what do we stake our lives on? We stake our lives on sola scriptura, right? But the trend that we see in mainstream Protestantism may give lip service to that sentiment, but in practice deny it. Not long ago, I stumbled across an article on a popular blog. Does anybody like to read blogs? Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, right? I found this blog article on a popular blog entitled, Five Verses You Thought Were in the Bible But Aren't. And there were many. And they were pretty funny. But 
One in particular is relevant today. One in particular stood out to me the most. And it goes like this. Just be a good person and follow the rules. And as long as you're not a really, really bad person, you'll go to heaven when you die. And they cite bad religion, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, this unbiblical verse, sounds funny to say, doesn't it? Unbiblical verse, is by far the most popular theology in our day outside the church. Ask the average person that you meet on the street, how does one get into heaven? And I guarantee the most common answer you'll get is somewhere along the lines of, I've been a pretty good person and I believe God will judge me based on that. Now, most of you here today know and believe that God will not judge us based on our human subjective standard of right and wrong, will he? We know that. But unfortunately and sadly, that is the gospel of many religions. In fact, that's the gospel of many denominations that have a sign out in front that says Christ. So therefore, I feel a tremendous burden, tremendous burden, at this hour to bring a message from God's word that sharply corrects that idea. We will see clearly that we are not justified by our good works. We are justified sola fide, by faith alone. The second of the five solas in this sermon series. Today, I'm going to teach you about the truth from Scripture about sola fide. We're going to go back to Paul's epistle to the churches in the region of Galatia. Because in it... I'm convinced that we discover one of the clearest texts in Scripture that deals with the subject of justification. Paul's main point in writing this letter was to rebuke and correct the Galatians' gullible and foolish reception of the false gospel of the Judaizers. These so-called Judaizers were advocating a gospel that said you must obey the law of Moses to be saved. Now, does that sound familiar? You must obey the law to be saved. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should. Because it is identical to the works-based gospel presented in every single religion other than biblical Christianity. After Paul condemned this Judaizer's gospel in Galatians 1, 6-9, go back and read that. It's very strong language. After he did that, he provided a brief account of where Paul got his gospel from and how it was received by the original 12. In the rest of chapter 2, he delivers the knockout punch to the Judaizer's gospel. And he gets to the heart of the matter. He confronts this gospel of works head on. And he leaves no room for confusion or ambiguity. In chapter 2, verse 16 of Galatians, Paul dogmatically asserts that a sinner is justified by faith alone in 
Christ alone. It is alone because there is nothing, not one work, added to saving faith. Now listen, everybody. Please look up. This is the heart of the gospel. I cannot emphasize, reiterate, repeat, restate, or rehash this enough. I have run out of vocabulary words. This passage that deals with the heart of the gospel is the core of this letter. It's the main point. It's the reason why he's writing. It addresses the nucleus, the bare substance of the gospel. If we get this wrong, everything else means nothing. What we can learn this morning from Galatians 2.16 is what makes biblical Christianity uniquely distinct from everything else. Let's read that together. Galatians 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. Will you pray with me again? God, I pause here right now because there is such a dire need for us to get this down tightly. Father, open our minds. Soften our hearts. Illuminate this text to us this morning for your glory. Amen. Now, note in verse 16, something obvious. Now, I know it's not always helpful to point out the obvious, but I'm going to right now. (laughs) What is the repetitive verb in that verse? Justified. And so if Paul is saying it over and over again, he really wants us to get it. So before I explain what justified means and what its significance is, we have to remind ourselves of one essential truth. Again, I will err on the side of not assuming anything versus assuming everything. <laughs> I've learned that lesson the hard way. So you have to understand and, and understand what's implied behind this. To say that a man is not justified by works of the law but through faith implies that you understand that there is a need to be justified. Every person born is born with a problem. And so that's our sin nature. Therefore, naturally and innately, we are all enemies of God. As soon as we come out of the womb, We are at enmity with him. We hate him. And that's evident in the fact that we don't have to be taught how to throw a punch. We don't have to be taught how to get angry. We don't have to be taught how to lie. We don't have to be taught how to do anything bad. We naturally know that. And so we we sin countless times. We have broken God's law numerous times. Prior to our conversion, all we ever did was sin. It wasn't that we messed up one or two or three times. It's that we lived a life in constant and incessant rebellion to our Creator. We know the Bible says, as a good Baptist, right? Revelation, excuse me, Romans 3, 
all have sinned and fall short. It's present tense. It's we fall and fall and fall and fall. Picture a precious little toddler. She's, she's learned how to walk. She takes two steps and she falls flat on her face. She gets up, takes one more step and falls flat on her face. Before our conversion, that was you. You were, you were falling. You kept on falling. You could not attain the standard of God's glory. Now, does that radically transform your view of man? All unconverted people fall to, fail to obtain God's standard every waking second. And I know it's popular and pleasant to say that we are all God's children. But if we're going to be truthful, we have to say that's not what the Bible teaches, does it? Because of our sin nature, we are born into this world alienated from God. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Therefore, we stand guilty before the supreme court of heaven. So then, if we get that, what is our greatest need? Our greatest need is to be justified before God. Your greatest need is to be justified before the throne of God. Again, justified. Look at the text again. Three times it's used. This refers to a forensic or judicial declaration that a person is just. It is a legal term used in a court of law. It means to be proclaimed innocent, to be acquitted, cleared of all charges. It's the opposite of being condemned. To be justified. In other words, in a biblical and theological sense, means this. Listen up, this is important. To be justified is to be declared righteous before the bar of God's justice. It is a legal declaration. Key word, declaration. So, when we talk about this essential biblical doctrine of justification, we mean this. It is an instantaneous legal act of God, which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. That's justification. The right understanding of the doctrine of justification answers the question that Job asked in Job 9, verse 2. How can a man be in the right before God? It also answers the question of the psalmist in Psalm 103, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Well, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. If the Lord marked our iniquities, we could not stand. Thankfully, there's a way that we can stand. But it's not through our own effort. It's 
to faith. We get right with God, not by observing the law, but by trusting in Jesus, the only man who observed it completely, who observed the law completely in thought and deed. So again, I will say again, this is the heart of the gospel, the core of the gospel. It is the most important, vital, uncompromising truth in the world. All other doctrines about God, Christ, and man intersect at this doctrine. This is what separates Christian religion from every other non-Christian religion. This is the doctrine where the truth of the gospel stands or falls. It was the central issue of the Reformation. And it remains an issue today. The gospel that the overwhelming majority of people believed uh, in the time of the medieval church was just like the gospel that the Galatians were duped with. A gospel of works. And it's because of men that God rose up. Men like Luther and, and, and Tyndale and Zwingli and all of those men. It's because God gave them the ability and the tenacity to risk their lives so that you and I can know that we are not justified by works. In his commentary of Galatians, Luther wrote this. Now, if I could perform any work acceptable to God and deserving of grace, and once having obtained grace, why should I stand in need of the grace of God and the suffering and death of Christ? Christ would be of no benefit to me. In other words... Luther was saying that if you can earn merit with God by obeying the law, then you don't need a Savior. You don't need Jesus. If you don't need Jesus, then you can obtain salvation on your own. And if you can obtain salvation on your own, then your hope is in self and not in Christ. But that's wrong, isn't it? The author of the hymn that we just sung, My Hope is in the Lord Got It Right, No Merit of My Own, his anger to suppress my only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. That is the doctrine of justification. So with that in mind, I want you to observe this morning from Galatians 2.16 how a sinner is first not justified. And then after that, how a sinner is justified. First, it's imperative that you understand crystal clearly how a person is not justified. A sinner is not justified by works. Look at verse 16 again. A man is not justified by works of the law, not by works of the law, but the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So, again, Paul intended to drill this proposition into the minds of his readers. It's abundantly clear in the text because he uses the negative three times. Not twice and then no once. Paul's dispute in this letter was, was, had to do with whether or not works of the law needed to be added to faith in order to be justified. Now, here's what works of the law were the Galatians. It's important to understand so we interpret this correctly. In general, works of the law were this. 
the Ten Commandments, the ordinances, and the Levitical sacrificial worship system. Now, we could spend hours surveying the the laws of the Old Covenant, but we must understand that the law recorded in Exodus to Deuteronomy was never intended as a means to be justified. The law, the Old Covenant law, um, which is recorded in Exodus to Deuteronomy, all of those laws that you read in there, it had five purposes. First was to reveal the character of God to the nation of Israel. Second, it was to set apart the nation of Israel from other nations. Exodus 19 said, uh, you shall be uh, to me a kingdom of priests. That's what Yahweh told Moses. Number three, the law was to reveal the sinfulness of man. Remember in Romans 7, Paul wrestled with that. He said, I, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The fourth reason for the law, the, fir- the, the fourth purpose, was to provide forgiveness through the sacrificial system for the people who had faith in Yahweh. And lastly, the purpose of the Old Testament law was to provide a way of worship for the community of faith through yearly feasts. Leviticus 23. That's what the law was intended for. In no way was it given as a means to become justified before God. And so that's what Paul makes crystal clear here, that the works of the law do not justify. Obedience to the covenant stipulations cannot make anyone right with God. Can't. Because sinful humans could not perform enough be justified you and i could never work ourselves to perfection can we even if from here on out we left this room after church today and somehow magically you were given the ability to never sin again that still leaves you with a problem it still leaves you with the problem of original sin, doesn't it? It still leaves you with the need to be regenerated, to have a new heart, to, to have your past sins wiped away. We would have the problem of original sin, which says that our heart does only evil continually. Genesis 6, verse 5. And so we, we cannot perform our own heart surgery, can we? No, we can't. So that means the best of human works cannot change our nature. Therefore, the only way to be declared just before God is to have faith in Christ alone. And that's it. There can be no effective, there can be no acceptable human addition to the work of Christ. That's what Paul is getting at in Galatians 2.16. Would you agree that that's pretty clear? But one may ask, and this is a common question. You may have this question right now, so I want to deal with it. One may ask, okay, if we're saved by faith alone, not through works, then what do we do with James 2.24? 
How do we reconcile our doctrine of sola fide with this? You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's what James 2.24 explicitly says. What do you do with that? That's a verse used by Catholics today to defend their position. And for many Protestants, this verse seems troublesome. This verse seems to flat out contradict sola fide. Does it not? If you read this verse at face value, especially out of its context, that creates a problem for us, doesn't it? Well, I have great news. I have great news. It does not have to pose a problem. If you have good, sound, consistent hermeneutics, it's plain to see that James is not using the word justified in a forensic or judicial sense. The context clearly indicates that James is referring to being justified in the sense of vindication, confirmation, or affirmation, not legal adjudication. Adjudication. His use of justified in verse 24 does not refer to one's judicial stand before God in a salvific sense. Okay? So if you take that view, if you say that's what it is saying, then you have to take the position that dikaio, the Greek term, always means to declare rights in a legal sense. If you take that position, then consistency forces you to say that Jesus was in need of justification like you and I. If you go to sec- if you go to 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. Paul wrote that Jesus was vindicated in the spirit. It's the same word. It's the same word that's translated justified. So would you be willing to say that Jesus was justified? Would you be willing to say that Jesus was declared righteous in God's sight in the same way a sinner is? I hope not. I hope you wouldn't say that. Because then you would have major problems with the gospel. So if Jesus was not declared righteous in the same way that we are, then what was Paul saying about Jesus in 1 Timothy 3? Well, we have to notice, first of all, okay, this is where our systematic theology comes in. The Spirit did vindicate Jesus in several ways. We know that the Holy Spirit was the source and power of Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke 4.14 says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit also confirmed his personhood before men at his baptism. Matthew records that Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. In other words, what was happening there is that the Holy Spirit revealed the legitimacy and authenticity of Jesus' ministry. So the Spirit vindicated, justified Jesus in the sense that he was confirmed as the Son of God before the world. 
the Holy Spirit declared his approval of what Jesus said and did. Does this make sense? So James, in the same way, in the context of chapter 2, verses 14 and following, is not speaking about Abraham's legal standing before God. He was speaking about good works that confirm or vindicate his saving faith. Good works confirm, vindicate, affirm saving faith in us. Saving faith is rooted in the righteousness of Christ that was credited to us when we believe. And our saving faith confirms, excuse me, our works confirm saving faith. Works are a result of saving faith, not the basis of it. So we need to understand this. We're saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by faith that is alone. For that is not true faith. True faith is vindicated by works. Remember what Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So an obedient believer gives evidence of saving faith. It is not the cause or the basis of it. It's a very important distinction. So, just to be clear, crystal clear about James 2.24 and how it relates to sola fide, understand that James is not saying we're saved by works. He's saying... Good works confirm the validity, the genuineness, the authenticity of a professing Christian. It's evident, therefore, that James perfectly agrees with Pauline theology. The only way to stand before God, perfectly righteous, totally free from sin, is to have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that brings us to the final point today. In this message on sola fide, first, a sinner is not justified by works. Second, I want you to note, a sinner is justified by faith. Very simple. Very simple. Look at verse Galatians 2, verse 16 again. A man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. So, notice again, Paul wrote justified through faith and by faith. What does this mean? Well, with the time I have left this morning, I want to explain to you what Paul means by explaining the ground or the basis and the means of our justification. You already understand the nature. The nature of our justification is this. It's a judicial act whereby he declares us righteous in his sight. Revealing not a new nature, but a new status. A new status. Is not a process. 
It's a one-time, instantaneous verdict by the true, highest Supreme Court that exists. So, now, the ground. What is the ground of our justification? What is the, the basis, the foundation of our justification? It's this. It is the work of Christ. Now, what do we mean when we say the work of Christ? We simply mean his perfect obedience. That's it. Contrary to our Roman Catholic friends who confess that justification is a gradual, continual process, they sort of weave sanctification and justification together. To be justified in Christ means that Christ's perfect obedience to the law is the ground that we stand on. His life, his work, wholly secured our salvation. He paid the price for us. He laid down his life in our place, having no sin. Thus satisfying the wrath of God. He took our sin. And he took it upon himself. And through faith, his righteous obedience is credited to us. It's a great exchange. It's double imputation. Therefore, having been clothed in the righteousness that he earned through perfect obedience, we now put it on and then can stand before the bar of God just. Think of it this way. Just a few weeks ago, I took my family to the Evergreen State Fair. It's a time of the year that we look forward to because we like going to the fair. One of the things that my children and my wife love to do is play the games at the booths. And so we went to one of these booths where they had um, the darts where you can throw at the balloons. And, and you know, for just five bucks, if you, if you get all of these balloons popped with your dart, you get the grand prize. And so... I know my wife loves these games, so we are about ready to leave. And we said, why not? Let's go play some more games. Mandy was there with us, too. She threw some darts. And, shockingly, both of these women hit a balloon with every dart. And what was given to her was a really bright stuffed animal. And what she did was she handed it to a child. And you could see the level of excitement and, and, and happiness on their face just by having been given a cheap stuffed animal. Now, question. What did the child do to obtain that prize? Did the child deserve credit for the possession of the prize? No. The real reason or the ground for the prize receiving was the, fa- the mother, in this case, prize winning. So her accomplishment secured for the child the gift. The child didn't do anything. So likewise, the ground of our justification is the perfect accomplishment of Jesus. However... The instrument of receiving the gift of salvation is not quite like receiving a tangible item like a stuffed animal. 
like you would reach out and take the gift from a parent. But the illustration works in this sense. Just as the parent won the prize for the child, and all, all the child did was take it. Jesus secured perfect righteousness on his own and gave it freely to those who have faith. Now that leads us to the means. The means or the instrument of our justification is faith. But what does that mean? Is it just some intellectual assent? Is it just having faith in belief? What is it? Well, first you have to say that the means of our justification is not based or does not come through religious hoops to jump through. And so the straightforward answer to the age-old question, what must I do to be saved? The answer is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Acts 16.31. So what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? What, what does it mean to obtain this righteousness? Through what means? Well, faith at its basic fundamental meaning is simply to rely. To rely on Christ. To trust wholly in Christ. To embrace his righteousness. Faith is the empty hand that receives the gift of justification. That's the means. Through believing in Christ, the object of our faith, we are declared righteous in God's sight. And at that moment, at that single moment, a sinner becomes a saint, a defiled man becomes clean, a guilty convict instantaneously becomes innocent. As always, there's more that I could say. But I don't want to go too deep into the weeds here. This is so basic. This is so essential. It's so fundamental. And it's often ignored. It's often misunderstood. And again, I'll say, if you misunderstand this doctrine of justification, you will be enslaved to the gospel of Rome, which is simply a reinvention, a repackaged version of the Judaizers' gospel. But it's so, under, it's so misunderstood. It's so ignored. One commentator noted that the blame can be placed on the nature of the age in which we live. The contemporary audience is reluctant to think theologically. It wants experience, it wants sensations, but it typically does not want to think hard or think in theological categories. Then he says, we are beginning to pay a price for this neglect. And that price, in part, is the propagation and reception of a gospel works. Every gospel that demands observance of rituals, sacraments, 
and rules as the basis and means of salvation is nothing new. Nothing new. Paul wrote in his letters that justification is a gift received by faith alone. Our righteousness comes from Christ, not from your own. It's because of his perfect righteousness imputed to us through faith alone that we can be declared righteous before God. Sola fide. And so to bring this back full circle, the reformers rediscovered this priceless, precious doctrine. And it is crucial that our generation again give testimony to sola fide so that we might see the blessing of God in the church once again as he has blessed it so often in the past like he did during the Reformation 500 years ago. I pray that we will stand on the shoulders of their legacy. I pray we will carry on the mantle of gospel ministry armed with the conviction of sola fide. And I pray that we will preach justification by faith alone without rest. Because there's a dying world that needs to hear this. There are dead churches that need to hear this. All for one reason. For God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this truth. I pray, Lord, that the things that were spoken will, will settle in our hearts and, and just understand more clearly. May the focus be more absorbed and, and, and may the focus be more clear on this truth. That this is essential and primary and fundamental. We need to understand it. We need to see that that a departure from this truth will land us back to where we were 500 years ago. Being ignorant of this truth will land us back to where the Galatians were 2,000 years ago. Mm. Father, thank you so much for your word and the clarity of it. May we take this truth and meditate on it and share it and discuss it and edify one another and also use it to evangelize those who are lost and enslaved to a gospel of works. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.